So we're going to get started and welcome. I apologize immediately for my voice. You can tell I'm under the weather whenever it changes. It throws me for a loop and I get a fever and I get sinus jump for about three days. It's like clockwork. So it'll happen now and it'll happen in the spring when the weather comes back. Um, but we can't miss this because we are middle of chapter 31 in Numbers. Now Numbers 31 gives an account of the battle that Israel had with Midian. And in particular, the Midianites, not in general, because the Midianites were spread out all over. So, and this is something important that chapter 31 brings to a head. In the Bible, whenever you read things like all or utterly or completely, you can't isolate that English word because the context is what determines the extent of that. Now what I mean by that, we're gonna see it big time when we get to the book of Joshua in like two years. Um, <laughs> the phrases in Hebrew, all of, every, you know, the entire, whatever, those are always conditioned or confined by the context of what's being talked about. So when the text says, destroy all, you know, so-and-so destroyed all of the Amalekites. That doesn't mean every Amalekite, ever. Because later in that very same book, more Amalekites will appear. So that's a thing where we have to realize that our English translations do not carry the same meaning as the Hebrew words that they're translating. Sometimes it's not a big deal. You can just say, instead of all the Midianites or all the Canaanites, you can, say, you can, in your mind, translate it easier by saying all of those Midianites, all of those Canaanites. You know, the New Testament does it as well. Paul says, you may all prophesy. Charismatic friends make a big deal about that. Everybody has the gift of prophecy. Well, in that section is when he's saying, hey, two or three of you should speak, and there should be an interpreter. You can all prophesy one by one. So the all that he's talking about, in that case, are the two or three or whoever have the prophecy. You all who have this can prophesy, just do it in turn. And so the all is conditioned by the context. So what does that have to do with this? Well, Numbers is one of the passages, number 31, that's going to start to get into this uh, concept, and it's going to use it in a way that doesn't make as much sense to us because we're used to part of it's English when we say all we we mean all um, usually but part of it's just folk theology you, you come up with this idea how many preachers have you heard say the Bible said it I believe it that settles it well that's admirable but it's also sometimes not accurate and it doesn't give it, it, it ironically does not hold God's word in the highest Place, it holds the person's superficial reading of God's word in the highest place. And that's very dangerous. Because what we have to realize when we're reading the Bible is that we're reading a, an English translation of the scriptures. And does it mean that we can't ever understand Hebrew? No. Does it mean you have to be a scholar to get any? No. What it means is we have to have interpretive humility. And it's especially important for preachers and teachers, which is why James, Jesus' brother, said, hey, not all of you should be preachers or teachers because you're going to be judged by a higher standard. And so when I'm speaking this and bringing up these background points and bringing up points of the Hebrew text, I'm not doing it to 
distance either myself or the Bible from you. I'm actually doing it for the exact opposite. To show you that the Bible is far removed from our culture. And that's the method that God has chosen to give us to communicate his word. So to honor his word, we have to be willing to do the diligence and listen to the voices in the body who he has given the expertise and the ability and the desire to study these things and to illuminate things that we ourselves may not pick up on our reading of the Bible. There's a very dangerous pride that comes from the Sola Scriptura doctrine, the Bible alone. There's a huge kernel of truth to it. But it can easily, like Satan twists everything good in order to make bad, because evil is parasitic, has no, Satan can't invent anything. He can only twist things that are already good. So he'll twist a desire for understanding scripture and a desire for sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and not needing a mediator and not needing a priest to go through and not needing the magisterium of the church to understand what it's saying. He'll take those good things and he'll twist them into, so whatever you read and get from it is authoritative and that's what God's telling you. And that's, that's not the same thing. Every, heri- every cult that's ever started has come from that. You know, God told me this in the text, and let me convince other people, and then they follow me. And so we have to really be aware of that, which is why Bible study is always a corporate thing. It's a corporate thing. It's a group thing. It's why we should always be willing to subject what we're hearing to critical scrutiny. So, for instance, when we look at this chapter in Numbers, it's a hard chapter because it seems to be God's putting in a, or allowing a command of, what we would call war crime or genocide. And so there's some things we have to notice about. And what I mean is verse 13. This is after they defeated the Midianites who had been harassing. Now God commanded them at the beginning of this chapter and back a few chapters before 25, go and strike or attack the Midianites. Treat them as enemies because they deceived you in the incident at Peor. And they basically, because they tried to destroy you through leading you astray, seducing you away from worship with me, and it led to a plague where 24,000 of you died. Pay them back, is what God says for this. So the command from God is go strike the army, go fight them, go fight a war, go fight a battle. And and so a thousand men from each tribe, or one elephant from each tribe, elephant is the word for thousand, uh, and I use elephant instead of thousand because it's not clear what that Hebrew word is talking about, whether it's thousand or whether it's regiment group or herd, the word can mean all of those. So I just leave the Hebrew and let you determine that on your own study. But God says, take an elephant from each of the tribes and attack the Midianites in this plague, the ones who attacked you. So this is a call to battle. This is what he's going to call Israel to do all throughout Canaan to the seven nations that he is dispossessing and calling Israel to dispossess. So all well and good so far. This is battle, warfare, part of the world. It's part of Israel's identity. No problem. Then when the people return, the armies return, you know, they burned the town, but they kept alive the women and children and took the herds and flocks as plunder. Again, that's all standard ancient warfare. You, you, You won a battle, you take everything. It becomes yours. Whether we like it or not, that's just how war was fought in the ancient Near East. So then verse 13 is where it gets troubling. Moses, Eliezer, the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them, the army, outside the camp. Because you can't enter the camp if you've killed somebody. Even if it's on God's command, you're still impure. Death renders you impure. Remember Leviticus last year. Death renders God's sanctuary impure. So anything that's touched the corpse, anything the high priest couldn't go bury his own father because of that. There was Death was like, a, like nuclear waste. 
in, in the spiritual sense, and it would contaminate. So that he goes and meets him outside the camp, and <clears throat> uh, Moses was angry with the officers of the army. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the Aleph's and the commanders of the hundreds who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from Yahweh and what happened at Baor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. In other words, the women who led them astray. But save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man, or every girl who was not involved in the Baor. Those are two ways you can read those. All of you who have killed, and then he goes on to say, all of you who have killed or touched anyone who was killed must stay outside the camp for seven days. On the third and seventh days, purify yourselves and your captives. Purify every garment as well as everything made of leather, goat hair, or wood. And that's the requirements we saw back in chapter 19 for whenever you have contact with the dead body. So it seems like to just get on as business as normal. But for us, we read that and we're like, whoa, whoa, you do not kill women and children. You don't. God, how could you command this? And this is where it's important to realize a few things, and we talked about this last week, but it's worth spending two weeks on because this is one of the chapters that critics and skeptics and people who are anti-scripture or even Christians who don't like the Old Testament will point to this as showing why we shouldn't, you know, I've heard some preachers even, famous preachers say, well, this is a part of the text that doesn't reflect the heart of God. This is the part of the text that we don't, this is not the inspired part. So we don't, we just get rid of this. Put this in this bucket of errors or things that this is just Israel being nationalistic and putting their own agenda and their own xenophobia and their own um, ethnic cleansing and all of this stuff so, so this is not from God but it's in the Bible and they just do that I can't do that as somebody who takes the New Testament seriously because Jesus never made that distinction Paul never made that distinction the New Testament authors never expressed any notion that any part of the Old Testament was not from God. So what I have to do with this as an honest interpreter is go, okay, I don't like this, but I'm reading. What's going on here? And I have to wrestle with Scripture at this point. And hopefully we all should. Again, like I said last week, if this doesn't bother you, you are severely disturbed and, and need help because this is sadistic seeming on its surface. So what do we do with it? Well, first of all, we realize we got to keep some principles in mind as we're navigating these difficult chapters, these things that we just seem out of place. One, this is not the first time we've heard from God, and this is not the first time that we've heard about what he, his desire is for non-Israelites. From the very beginning of this Bible study, you can listen to the podcast, you can re-watch the videos. For four years now, we've been saying this over and over and over. The reason God called Israel was to bless the nations. Genesis 12. Genesis 15, the covenant confirmed, Exodus 20, all of these things. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will, through your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We've also seen God for four years now go out of his way to reach out to, to lift up, to spare, or to praise righteous Gentiles in the stories. So we meet these people who come on the scene that we have no idea how they know God. We have no idea how they have a covenant relationship, but they do. We meet Melchizedek's, and we meet Jethro's, and we meet these people who we're gonna meet Rahab later. People who were like, whoa, God is actually using the paradigm of the quote righteous Gentile, or the Gentile with knowledge of him, to instruct Israel. So that gives us a notion that one, God's not anti-Gentile. 
We also see God's judgment is most severe on Israel. The severity of anything that he does to the nations is done to Israel. Every single thing that God does to the nations in judgment is either already been done or will be done to Israel when they disobey. So God's judgment is never ethnically based. It's always ethically based. And that's a huge distinction. Because God holds Israel to standards higher than he holds the Gentile nations. To whom much is given, much will be required. So keeping that in mind, the last, another thing to keep in mind is ancient Near East battle accounts. And this is where people will be like, oh, if they're you know, hardcore Bible-believing Christians, they may struggle with this. But as a hardcore Bible-believing Christian, I'm telling you this is how it works. In the ancient Near East, battle accounts, war records, and, and um, chronicles of military exploits, always, with no exceptions, always, to my knowledge, contained exaggeration of the account. They always employed language that was hyperbolic. Hyperbole is when you say something that has a literal meaning, but you mean it in a way that's not literal. Now, this shouldn't shock us because Jesus did it all the time. You know, Jesus said the mustard seed is the smallest seed, but it grows into the largest. But, well, technically, no, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed, and the mustard tree is not the largest tree. But in that area, and for that purpose that Jesus is teaching, he was using hyperbole. Same thing when he says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. You know, if, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We don't question whether he was being hyperbolic. He was. The whole point was to shock. When God says to Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Well, there are trillions of stars in the sky. And the more we see the sky, the more stars we see. And that is hyperbolic language. Or God says to Abraham, your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore. Or the prophets say, this army is like the sands of the seashore. We know that's hyperbole. We don't take it literally. But for some reason, when it comes to battle accounts, we feel like our default, especially if numbers are included, that we have to take that as literal numbers and literal facts. And the, what I'm trying to say is you may take that literally if you want to. And it's not like you're wrong or ignorant or any of that stuff. What I'm saying is the text and the genre of literature that we're talking about does not demand that everything it recounts be read literally. And that's something that's really, that's not spiritualizing the text. That's not taking liberal theology. That's not denigrating the Bible. That's reading it and understanding the genre that it's written in and the norms of that genre. So, for instance, we've already done this in Genesis. And it's the, it's the point I always bring up. Genesis flat out says, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. That does not mean that Eskimos paddled down from Greenland to buy something they've never even heard of before, grain, from Joseph. We, all, we know what that means. It means in the context you know what I mean. Like, yeah, we just say, you know what I mean. Did the Panthers win last night? Yes. Was it a significant victory? Yes. Like, by a lot. So, the Panthers, who did they beat? Who was it? Okay, so, the Panthers killed the Dolphins last night. Yeah. None of you would bother bat an eye or accuse me of murder or call the police on the Panthers if I said that. You all understand when I say they just, oh, they destroyed them last night. Stand-up comedians use it. When a stand-up comedian, I have a friend who's stand-up, when he has a good night on stage, they, they say, I destroyed that night. I killed that night. Right? This is, our language works this way, but for some reason when we read the Bible, it's like, 
We don't even think that that could be happening when we're reading these accounts, but it does in every other ancient Near East battle account. So that should at least condition us to the possibility that this may happen in Scripture as well. This will be huge when we get to Joshua because the entire book of Joshua is written in that style and contains things that are... We read this and we think, oh, okay, okay, I'm reading along, 32,000. Those numbers are astronomical. When we read that Saul led 210 soldiers into battle against the Amalekites, whoever, we think, okay, well, the U.S. Army, I mean, you know, we're used to a large major army. Egypt, at its height of power, maybe had 150,000 soldiers, the largest empire in the world. Babylon, same thing. So 200,000 for little tiny Israel is, um, it's like we have to read that and go, okay, theoretically, could God do that? Sure. It's not a question of could he. Is that what he's doing in the text? And in the book of Numbers, numbers are the thing that we have to pay attention to and realize that we're reading numbers in a pre-math society. So numbers for us are used to denote precision and specificity. Numbers in the ancient world were used to denote symbol, imagery, or, or a, a, a truth about God that may or may not be tied to those literal numbers. 40 days and 40 nights does not literally mean 40 exact days and 40 exact nights. Three days and three nights does not mean three days and three nights. Matthew says, Jesus said, I'll be buried, the Son of Man will be in the earth, three days and three nights, like Jonah, right? The same Matthew later, Jesus said, or says, and on the third day, Jesus rose. So that's less than three days and three nights. That lets us know that that is, again, not a literal figure that we need to do all these contortions to try to defend and well, Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday and da 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 da. We don't need to do all that if we just let the text not say what it says in English, but let the text say what it says in Hebrew and adjust our understanding of how language works to compensate for that. So that's the fourth thing to remember, I think, whatever I was on. <laughs> the last thing to remember, and this I'm getting this recorded so you can go back and listen. Uh, if you want to jot these down, the last thing to remember as we're reading Numbers and the rest of the book is, in this case, God said, go strike them, fight the army, win the battle. God commanded a military exploit. Moses is the one who was angry when they returned. Moses is the one who says, kill all the boys, kill all the women. Now, Moses' anger has already been something that has been contrary to what God wanted to begin with. We've already seen Moses get angry and lash out. And he was denied the promised land because of that. So there's an argument to be made, and I can give you the name of interpreters who make this argument, that the text in this case is very intentionally bringing that anger up again to show that Moses was angry, but also it specifically doesn't say that God said to do it, and it doesn't even say that it happened. In other words, nowhere in this chapter do we actually, does it actually say, so they went and did it. This is just Moses, and we know because Moses had to watch 24,000 people die in a plague because of these same women from this same area of Midianites, how they led astray and almost destroyed Israel entirely by getting Israel to leave the covenant. 
So this is reflective of, this comes to mind when you read the Psalms of uh, imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory Psalms are where the Psalmist says things like, let their you know, mothers be childless, or you know, happy are those who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. You know, these are Psalms where the Psalmist is expressing anger, grief, hatred even, and he's expressing it to God because it's, 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 a, it's an expression of raw emotion. And the psalmists leave it there and they allow that to be directed to God. Like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm so angry. I want them dead. And they let the person say that to God and it actually even makes it into Israel's scripture. That is not, and we do this with the psalms and we understand this with the psalms, that is not the Bible teaching that we should pray for our enemies to be killed or that we should pray and we should rejoice when people are slaughtered if they've done bad stuff to us. We get it. We understand these songs are there to express raw emotion and to express anger and to express pain. They're not there to teach us how we should respond. So interpreters of this passage make that point with this is that the fact that whenever before it said, and Moses did everything the Lord commanded and so-and-so did everything the Lord commanded, or they did all that Moses had commanded, the Lord had commanded through Moses. It, it's not written in this section. It's not reported that they did it, the killing part. It is reported the, the giving of God from what was brought, and we'll read that in a minute. But these are important things to note because we have to be honest enough to admit that a surface reading of this chapter by itself is really hard to spot, and it's really uncomfortable. And your atheist friend your skeptical grandpa at Thanksgiving, your sibling who always loves to send you internet articles about why you can't trust the Bible and blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you, they're going to bring this chapter up if they find it. So the best thing you can do is bring it up yourself if need be and say, yeah, I know this is here. And let me tell you some background to it. Let me tell you some things about it that we're going to condition how you read this story. Because we'll read this story based on our desire for God. If we want to view God as loving, we're going to read this story and we're going to go, this doesn't seem loving. How can I understand this based on what I know about God? If we want to see God as an arbitrary, cruel, vindictive tyrant, we'll read this and go, ha, see? Case closed. And we won't do any further study. So it's important to keep that in mind and that's why in this Bible study we don't skip the hard chapters. We don't skip the genealogies. We don't skip the boring stuff. We go through it all because this God knew that we would read this, and he knew that his believers in the 21st century in North America reading this would not be comfortable with it. He knew it, and yet it's still in here. And so for us as Christians who believe Jesus is the word incarnate and that Jesus upheld this as God's word, Jesus didn't shy away, Jesus was never embarrassed, but he also recognized that things in here were allowed by God, but not taught or, or, or not prescribed by God. And he says it about divorce in the New Testament. Moses gave you that because your hardness of heart. Like God, there are things in the Torah that God knew, this is not my ultimate plan. This is not what I want in the long run. But at this time in history, it's happening and I'm working in it and using it and entering into the mess and the muck and the violence, in this case of the ancient Near East, in order to pull out and to redeem something. And that's as good as we can do as believers when we read these chapters. To try to go beyond it and to prove why this was, oh, well, really, God was perfectly great and you shouldn't have a problem with this. That's going to take a lot of twists and contortions and 
you're just gonna ask people to believe stuff that no rational person on the surface will believe. The only way they'll believe it, the only way they'll be okay with this is if they know the person. I'll give you an example, and I'll, uh, we got, I'll, I'll end with this. Next week we'll finish this chapter, but it's an important one to take this understanding of how to approach it. Uh, this is the hardest chapter in Numbers to teach, by the way, this, by far. Uh, so I, I do jujitsu, I do martial arts, I teach that as part of my ministry. And there's a, my instructors are the teachers, so the guy who I study under, the guy who taught him, is a very famous, famous martial artist who was an early MMA fighter. He's from Brazil, so he would fight MMA matches way back before they even used gloves. Like it was, you know, just bare hands and, you know, people were like, whoa, that's crazy. But that's when he was fighting. <clears throat> and not a believer, so don't hold the Christian standards, but just telling you this, there's a fight that my instructor's instructor, he was in against the guy who was a judo guy. And after the fight, so they followed, after the fight when my instructor, our teacher won, he had like, he, he got the guy in a submission and the guy wouldn't tap him, the guy ended up passing out. He's just getting caught choked out. And so he like dropped him. And as he was walking away, he, he stepped on him as he walked, like just kind of stepped on the side of his neck. And people were like, oh, that's off behind. I saw it at the time and I was like, Dude, come on, the martial arts is respect, like your opponents, this and that. And so for a, while, for a long time, this is way before I ever started training, I ever met the guy. That was the image I had of him in my mind. I was like, that guy's such a jerk. He's such a, you know, just always thought he was a punk. So then years later, I started studying there and I actually met him in person. Seriously, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. If he came in this Bible study, every one of you would leave being like, I love that guy. He's so nice. He's such a cool, you know, like it just didn't match. And everybody that I knew said the same thing. They were like, he's, oh yeah, you met Enzo? Oh, he's the nicest guy ever. Oh, he's so, oh, he did this for me. He did this. He's the nicest guy. <coughs> and so it was hard to reconcile. Why did he do that in that match with this guy that he is and everybody? Well, later people learned or he, he said, yep. Yeah, Part of it, I mean, looking back, it's like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. Yes, I was a young, hot-headed, young Brazilian guy coming to America. But that night before, so you have your weigh in, and then the next day you have the back fights. The night before, that guy and his team, every hour, called his hotel room, keeping him awake, every hour. So they couldn't get any sleep. And the guy at the weigh in, and, up, and on, during the calls, said, very specific and very explicit things that he was going to do to Henzo's wife after oh, he beat him. Yes. Oh, okay. So, knowing that, then then it made it be like then once I heard that story and he, you know heard it from him, it was like, okay, all right, that's a lot more understandable after this guy had done this and made these threats and said this and da 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 da. I don't condone it, but I understand it. Okay, it's understandable. And I, well, it, I looked, I was like, man, actually, that's a lot of restraint. Yeah. And I'm not even married, but I know if I were and somebody said that, I, I would be, you know, so it, it, it was this, it was a great illustration to me, at least, when I was reading this chapter of, before I knew the man, before I knew Henzo Gracie, uh, I would just thought, what a jerk, what a punk, why would you do that? Doesn't matter what trash talk, why would you do After I knew him, I was like, well, that's, that is very out of character, that instance. And then I got background information that was like, oh, okay. I'm not nearly as, as uncomfortable with that as I was. Am I fully comfortable? No, obviously. But it, it severely softened it. 
And I think after that he might have made up, or I don't even remember if they ever patched it up or anything. But the point of it is, knowing a person's character for yourself makes you look at them doing things questionable with the benefit of the doubt. And when God does stuff in Scripture, we, we as believers, because we know him, we have a relationship, we give him the benefit of the doubt. But we can't expect people who don't know him to give him the benefit of the doubt. So we need to be ready to bring those backstory concepts, to bring those notions to our friends who do have legitimate problems with reading this and say, I understand. I understand. Let me walk you through some things that have helped me as I wrestle with this. And at the end of the day, that's the best we can do. We can't believe for anybody. We can't convince them. Uh, we can just say, look, I get it. I get it. If, if non-believers or people that have wrestled with things about God, just hearing Christians say, I actually understand what you're saying, and you're kind of right in this regard. Now, let me explain. That's huge. If you go in and they're like, well, how could God do this? They're like, nah, God didn't do that. You know, you shouldn't have a problem. He's God. He can do what he wants. God gives life. He can take life. You know, if you watch into this theology of ethics of, of divine command theory, yeah, you may win an argument, especially if it's on the Internet, but you're probably not bridging a chasm that needs to be bridged in terms of that person's relationship to God. So when I'm teaching on numbers, and next week when we're going to look at the chapter, we're going to look at the results of this chapter and what they did do correctly, what God did acknowledge and honor. It's important to know that that command in this text is not acknowledged and honored by God. It's stated by Moses. And we don't know if it took place or not, but you can make a pretty good case that even Moses got it wrong sometimes because we've already seen in the book of Numbers the, an episode where he got it wrong on a major scale. So this may be an incidence of that. Maybe, maybe not. Not being dogmatic, there are other interpretations possible. But for me, that makes it a lot easier to see this and to not go, how in the world, Jesus, could you ever condone something like this? So hopefully that will help you as you wrestle with it. We're out of time. we got to go. Um, but there's plenty of food left, so come get some seconds or take a to-go thing if you want. Uh, tell everybody that's not here we missed them this week. Come back next week. And hopefully my voice will be better. But we'll see you then. Thanks, guys.